when we find ourselves surrendering and submitting to the power of the Holy Spirit and saying, Father, I cannot do this on my own. I have tried over the years. It isn't working. Let me hand it over to you. You need to empower me. You need to enable me. That's the point when victory begins. And that's why Luke writes, and the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. This morning we are beginning a new series of studies in the New Testament book of Acts, and the overall title for our new series is Growing in Grace and Gratitude. So if you have your Bible this morning, can you turn with me please to Acts chapter 2 as we're reading the first 13 verses together, and you'll find it on page 1692, page 1692 of the church Bible. We will be spending our Sunday mornings in Acts during the latter part of August into September and towards the end of October as well. And if you don't have a daily Bible reading plan, and if I asked you about it, you might say, Richard, it's one of those things I've always really wanted to do, was read a little passage of Scripture each morning, and I just haven't been able to do that. Let me suggest this. Next Sunday morning, we'll be looking at Acts 3, the following Sunday morning, Acts 4, and we will, will be continuing that pattern to Acts chapter 10. And if you're unfamiliar with Acts Take a couple of minutes each day, working your way through the chapters we're going to study on a Sunday, and what you'll discover is this, that the more time you spend in God's Word, He will begin to speak into your life and into the challenges and the decisions and the situations that you face each day. So let me encourage you, please, as we start this new series, to become very familiar with the book of Acts. It will be, I think, an exciting uh, and very real, authentic experience for you as you engage with God's Word. So, we're beginning this morning, Acts chapter 2, at verse 1, a well-known passage. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this, this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in their own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of His holy word. 
Now, travel back with me in your imagination 2,000 years to that first Pentecost. And can you imagine downtown Jerusalem that morning when 3,000 people were impacted by the gospel and responded to the love and grace of God? And that's why Peter stands up and says, these people are not drunk, as some of you have supposed, but God is at work, and a supernatural act of God took place that morning. Now, up till this point, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you will know that the Holy Spirit would anoint an individual sometimes for a season, sometimes for years. He would lead and guide and direct and give them particular power in the midst of challenging days. But from Acts chapter 2 on, everything changes. If I use a sports analogy, it was a game-changer, because with the coming of the Holy Spirit, all of the purposes and plans of God in eternity past had come to fruition that day, and His redemptive purposes were breaking into our world in an unprecedented manner. And that's where we're going in our study this morning. But before we get there, and this often happens on a Sunday morning, when we begin a new series, I like to give you a little of the contextual backdrop, sometimes historically, sometimes in terms of the culture, but a context is helpful when we begin a new series of studies. And this morning it's helpful for us to know this. We're going to look at who wrote the book of Acts, when did they write it, who were the writing to, and give you five minutes of an overview, and then we'll launch into chapter two. So, please be patient with me. The first thing you need to know is this, that when we read chapter two, when the day of Pentecost came, we ask ourselves, well, who is writing and to whom? And we know, of course, that the book of Acts was written by the same author as Luke's gospel. So, in your mind, if you're thinking of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke's gospel and Acts is written by the same individual. Surprisingly, his name was Luke. So, Luke writes both the gospel and Acts. You should see Acts as a sequel to the gospel. Over these next 10 weeks, you're going to become very familiar with the geography of Acts. Some of us in our mind have a hard time working out where is Jerusalem compared with Jericho, where is Jericho in relation to Nazareth, where is Nazareth in relation to the other parts. But in Acts 1.8, Luke records what is now a famous phrase when he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, after the next eight or ten weeks, you'll have a broad sense of where is this taking place. And Luke was such an accurate writer, he's known as the historian of the New Testament. And by that, we mean this. The places he describes are real places. He didn't sit down, once upon a time there was a town called, and then make something up. This is real places, real people, real events. And one of the other patterns you're going to see emerge in Acts is this, that Luke delights to highlight supernatural events that takes place. He then highlights the people involved, and then he underlines again and again and again 
the rich doctrinal truths that have transformed and changed lives. And we'll see all of that in subsequent weeks, and we're about to see it in the passage we're looking at today as well. So, that'll give you a sense of the geography of Acts. Then we have a timeline of Acts. You should think of Acts in a broad sense of covering a period of about 30 years. So, if we're starting chapters 1 and 2 today, by the time we're finished, we'll have covered 30 years. Now, the good news is we're only going to do 10 chapters this year. Next fall, we'll tackle another 10, and 2019 will bring it all uh, to a conclusion. But over the next 10 uh, weeks, chapters 1 to 7, and chapters 1 to 7 will cover a time period of approximately two years. So, that'll give you a sense, and it all begins in Jerusalem. And the reason they begin in Jerusalem is this, that they are eager to watch the gospel impact the society and culture around them. And again and again, you're going to hear me return to this frame on a Sunday morning of what does it mean to be a church living in a 21st century downtown context? We're about to see all of that unfold over the next few weeks. Chapters 8 to 12 cover about a 12-year period, and then chapters 13 to 28 about a 15- or 16-year period. So, 30 years in all for the book of Acts. Now, the focus in Acts changes in chunks, if I can use that phrase. Chapters 1 to 7, the church established in Jerusalem, where we'll spend most of our time. Chapters 8 to 12, Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, uttermost parts of the earth will come in chapters 13 to 28. So, that's where we'll be going in terms of a broad outline, but there's one more focus I need to get your attention, and it's this. Chapters 1 through 12, the dominant individual will be the Apostle Peter, and we'll be introduced again and again to people that we know from the Gospels, and our main focus, chapters 1 to 12, again and again, will be Peter. He's the dominant character. Then chapters 13 to 28, the main character is Paul, But please hear me when I say this. The thing we need to watch out for on a Sunday morning is that we don't leave thinking about Peter or Paul because the dominant individual from chapter 1 to chapter 28 throughout all of Acts is not Peter, it's not Paul, but it's the Holy Spirit. And again and again and again, Sunday after Sunday, we're going to engage with the Holy Spirit interact with Him, and then begin to say, Father, what are You teaching me in my life? What are the areas that the Holy Spirit needs to refine and change? Grant me a sensitivity and a willingness to listen and engage with You as the Holy Spirit works in my life. So, that's a broad overview of where we're going. So, let's get into Acts chapter 2. It begins when the day of Pentecost came. And Pentecost, as most of you know, means 50. And this takes place 50 days after the Passover celebration. In other words, 50 days after the death and then subsequent resurrection of Christ. And people from all over what is called the Mediterranean Basin in the Greco-Roman world, Jewish folks would travel up to Jerusalem for feasts and festivities. And they're coming up for the Feast of the Harvest. And that's why the passage tells us that in Jerusalem there were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, and so on and so on. But there are two groups of people, and I need you to get this. If you're teaching a Sunday school class or a small Bible study group, 
You need to hear this. At the end of this group, and I didn't, I should have counted, I can't honestly tell you how many, somewhere I'm guessing around 10 or 12 groups, and it finishes with Cretans and Arabs, there are two groups missing. In the oldest, most reliable manuscripts that we have, there are two groups that don't make it into our modern English translation. And so, the passage should read like this. Now, I'll not do them all, but bear with me. Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and Jewish, and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs, Scots, and citizens of Greenville. They belong in here as well, okay? So, just a heads up. Now, some of you are freewheeling and dozing, and you miss that, and you're wondering why people are laughing. Well, you're just going to have to ask them over lunch what happened there, and if you missed it, you missed it. So, it's right there. Now, apart from all my silliness in getting your attention, what is going on here? And that's the question that's asked by the onlookers. Look at verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? They had gathered from across that Mediterranean region. They could hear people speaking about the wonders of God in their own language. And they're saying, what does this mean? What is going on? How do we make sense of this? And I think most of us will recognize this experience in this, or a similar experience in this sense. I see it fairly regularly when an individual who's been attending church for five or six months will approach me and ask to come and see me, and they'll say, Richard, something has happened to me. I can't wait till Sunday morning to be in church. I'm reading my Bible more often than I ever have. I'm finding myself standing in the shower in a morning, and the words of a hymn is running through my mind. I'm praying when I'm stopped at traffic lights. I'm praying when I arrive in the office in the morning. I'm praying last thing at night. What on earth is wrong with me? And I have to say to them, nothing wrong with you. What is happening is this, that you have moved into a relationship with God that you never thought possible. And that can be an unnerving and unsettling experience. And if we are not spiritually attuned to what God is doing, it's easier to dismiss it or marginalize it and say, it's this, when in fact, it is that, and that's what's going on here. For centuries, God had purposed and planned in His sovereign way this day to happen. And when it happened, 3,000 souls were transformed and came into a living relationship with Him. And those around who could not work out what was going on, they find it easier to dismiss it rather than deal with it. And whenever we come across a new experience, we try to filter it from a past experience. And the only thing they could do, because they couldn't make sense of it, is to say they've been drinking too much. And when Peter says, hold on, it's only nine o'clock in the morning, these people certainly are not drunk, but what you're seeing is this. And he quotes the Old Testament from the book of Joel, and he says, God is now at work. Now, remember we said up to this point in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit had anointed and had walked with people for a period or a season or through a particular challenge in their life, but from this point on, with the 
coming of the Holy Spirit, with Him breaking into, impacting lives, and dwelling within people, life is absolutely changed. It's that game-changer. Things are never the same thereafter, because they are now in a relationship with Him that they did not know existed, and suddenly prayer is a priority. Worship is something they long for. Gathering in Christian fellowship is meaningful and significant because now God has touched and transformed the heart. That's why it's a game-changer. Now, let me give one more backdrop, and then we'll try and wrap things up, or a contextual backdrop, rather. Try and see Pentecost through the mind of the apostles. Fifty days earlier, they had gone through one of the most difficult periods in their adult life. Their best friend, their closest friend, had been arrested, tried, crucified, had died, and was buried. And imagine the intensity of the moment. Think of the raw experience that would be. And then three days later, he comes back to life. And all of the joy and the thrill of the resurrection, when they began to realize not only is he back from the dead, but God is fulfilling all of his promises of eternity past. And when Jesus gathers them together, he tells them this, it is good for me if I go away. Now, can you imagine what that is like to lose your best friend, then have them back for a period, and then the friend says, I need to leave you again? They're thinking, what is going on? And in their mind, they now know there are no longer those long walking expeditions round the Sea of Galilee. There's no longer sitting around a campfire at night into the early hours of the morning asking him questions and engaging with him. There's no longer listening to him preach and watching the impact he has or watching miracles change and transform lives. And they're thinking, how can we exist without him? And he says, do not leave Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit and the power that comes from on high. Now, what does he mean there? Because, folks, please remember, the Holy Spirit from this point on is no longer an influence. He's no longer simply leading and guiding. He's doing all of that, but now it is personal, because when the Holy Spirit comes, we have in Acts what did not exist in the gospel. Because in the Gospels, Jesus was limited and restricted because of his physicality. He couldn't be in Jerusalem at the same time he was in Jericho. He couldn't be in Samaria the same time as he was in Nazareth. He could not be everywhere at the same time because he was truly human. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he indwells hearts and minds everywhere. Earlier today, in Central Africa, in Ghana, people were worshiping because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And not just in Ghana, but in New Guinea, and in Delhi, and in Tokyo, and in Beijing, and in Moscow, and in Rome, and in Atlanta, and here in Greenville. That's why the Holy Spirit came, because God was interested in the redemption and salvation of all humanity. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And why does he say, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit? For this reason. I suspect most of us, if I sat you down and said, now, tell me, how are you getting on in your faith? Are you closer to Christ in your relationship with Him this morning than you were at the beginning of the summer? Have you a greater, greater appetite for the presence of God? A longing, passionate, overwhelming desire to worship from heart and mind and soul? Have you moved beyond simply the information and emotion of the death and resurrection of Christ? Is it a living reality in your life? Do you know Him, know Him deeply? And you may say, well, Richard, I think I could say yes to most of that, but recently, you know, as I've been kind of sitting down each morning trying to get my day underway, I've been getting up early, opening up my Bible, sitting there with a cup of coffee, and honestly, I feel a little lost. Way back in the Old Testament, I'm engaging with people with unpronounceable names and unfamiliar places, and it's just one slow historical event after another. And honestly, I'm struggling. It just feels as if I'm plodding through treacle or molasses. Spend time in the book of Acts. There's nothing slow or gradual or plodding about the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes, and He enables, and He sustains, and He grants us His power. And what do I mean by that? I mean this, that if there are areas in your life that spiritually you have not been able to get victory over, and you're struggling with an attitude or a behavioral issue, or you're thinking about folks the way you shouldn't be thinking about them, or you find yourself snapping at your children, you find yourself in situations of tension and difficulty in the office, and you're just ready to blow up any second, and you are conscious that that is happening, when we find ourselves surrendering and submitting to the power of the Holy Spirit and saying, Father, I cannot do this on my own. I have tried over the years. It isn't working. Let me hand it over to you. You need to empower me. You need to enable me. That's the point when victory begins, and that's why Luke writes, and the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you because if we try to live the Christian life on our own, we will fail and fail miserably. But when we surrender to the rule and reign of God in every area of our lives, that's when the breakthrough comes. That's when we're ready to say, Father, I can't have victory over this. I always behave that way, but when we surrender and leave it with Him, that's the moment of breakthrough, and that's what is promised. When the Holy Spirit comes, He indwells, and He transforms, and He sustains, and He enables. So, three things in conclusion. Number one, there is nothing slow or gradual about the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, and the more time you spend in its pages, the more often you will discover it speaks into your life. Number two, we are moving away from information just for the sake of information alone. Folks, please hear me when I say this. 
the distance between Jericho and Jerusalem, the dimensions of Noah's ark, the diet of John the Baptist will not transform your life. You have to take the biblical spiritual principles that are there and apply them and live them out, surrendering and submitting to Him. So, that's number two. And thirdly, please remember this. We've been emphasizing it over the last two years, and most of you are fed up with me saying it, but let me close with it this morning. Pentecost is a game-changer for this reason. The same moral and spiritual power that brought Christ back from the dead lives within your heart if you belong to Him. And there is nothing He cannot do. There is no barrier too high. There is no valley too deep, no dream too extreme, because He is with you in the midst of it. And it's the surrendering and the submitting to Him that makes all the difference. So, that's where we're going, both this morning and in coming weeks. And please let me encourage you, both congregation, choir, musicians, that Sunday morning, make this date with me now at 11 o'clock. You will be here Sunday morning, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, opening up Acts and prayerfully saying, Father, I cannot wait for all that You have for me this morning. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this spectacular passage in Acts. Enable us, please, in the days to come, that we would be surrendering heart and mind and soul to You once again, submitting our lives to Your providential grace, praying that we, we might be men and women growing in grace and in gratitude. Father, not only do we ask that You would presence Yourself in our midst, but we ask that You would refine and shape us by the power of Your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you need prayer for something or someone in your life? First Presbyterian Church offers a prayer service each Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock. Our prayer ministers will quietly intercede for you or anyone you're representing who needs prayer.